Take a network break, get a virtual donut before it melts, and join us for our weekly stroll through the IT news. Today, we cover a new Broadcom ASIC, a CyberSec acquisition, generative AI, financial results from Juniper Networks, and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. Your branch has changed, your SD-WAN should too. Join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks hosted an exclusive online event that shows how next-gen SD-WAN and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to sdxcentral.com to get the link to this free event and see the replay. Uh, we are also sponsored by Palo Alto Networks. In the Tech Bytes portion of this podcast, we get into secure web gateways. Uh, they sit between users and web traffic to enforce policies around web apps uh, access and inspect traffic for malware. We talk with Palo Alto Networks about customer challenges with secure web gateways, innovations in their Prisma Access Cloud Secure Web Gateways, and more. And last but not least, if you like Network Break, we have a whole bunch of other podcasts you might enjoy, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, Full Stack Journey, Kubernetes Unpacked, and Heavy Wireless. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. You can find them all at packetpushers.net or on your favorite podcast pusher. Podcast pusher? It's podcatcher is the tech... Got to use the terminology, Drew. <laughs> I'm trying to brand packet pushers, podcast pushers. It's all, oh, it's all I part see of my you. Oh, branding. Branding. <laughs> you see that? Brand- oh, I missed that. Gosh. <laughs> I want to raise from our marketing department. We have a marketing department? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get a marketing department and then I'll ask for my raise. <laughs> well, that's, there's a reason to have one. Perhaps <laughs> not. <laughs> All right, let's do some news. First, uh, Broadcom has released a new Ethernet switch ASIC in the Trident family. It's the Trident 4-X7. It's a 4 terabit per second ASIC for top of rack switches. It supports 400 gig connections up to the spine and 50 or 100 gig connections from the server rack. Uh, Broadcom claims this ASIC cuts power per 100 gig port by more than half. Ah, so continuing the naming conventions that Broadcom just seems to... Not, you know, always seems weird to me, but I, I guess it's better than BCM56690, the Trident 4-X7. Are they trying to go for some... 4-X7 is a little easier to yeah, say Yeah, that's that. right. I mean, one, yes. it does feel like a bit like a 1960s, you know, uh, fiction spaceship. Sports car. Yeah, or sports car. <laughs> you know, the 4-X7. You know? <laughs> but but uh, this is, of course, uh, Broadcom has spun all of its ASICs now. We've talked about Jericho. We've talked about Tomahawk. And this is the Trident. So this is very much intended to be the campus edge or perhaps top of rack uh, in the data center for on-prem data centers in the enterprise. It's not, uh, you know, the Jericho has uh, a, a range of products which is usually meant to be used in the spine or for specific functions. We talked about Broadcom's AI networking push over the last few months. So this is the edge, so targeting the campus, uh, the high-speed campus, so not even the campus edge. You're probably using lower-cost ASICs right out at the campus edge. The Trident is not the cheapest chipset. It still has um, 80 by 50 gig SERDES. So as we move towards 100 gig and 400 gig what they and 800 gig, what they now do is talk about their ASICs as having uh, 50 gig lanes, and then you can allocate mm-hmm. those 50 gig lanes into different capacities. So if you want to make this a 25 gig, you have to derate a, 20, a 50 gig to that. So you've only got 80 ports if you're running sub 50 gig but if you're running 400 gig where you take 8 by 50s wand them out through a front port this is up to the OEM to do this by the way you know you take this ASIC and you package it inside of a switch and so Uh then you've got 10 400 gig ports right or so on and so forth so it's up to the vendor to decide how to package these you know for what they believe the customers are most looking for Um, I think this is probably going to be fairly widely used by enterprise switches. I don't think you'll see this much used in the cloud unless it's got 
you know, specific niche use cases going forward. Uh, they do say it's got a programmable packet processing pipeline using Broadcom's NPL language. It does not support the Open P4 language. Uh, it does support the Sonic Network OS and the Switch Abstraction Interface, or SI. So maybe Broadcom's hoping that it shows up in a few uh, cloud locations, or maybe <laughs> those uh, big enterprise data centers that are experimenting with uh, disaggregation and looking to get a, a different NOS on there. The challenge with Broadcom is that they do mandate that the only way you can program their ASIC is using MPL, which is their network processing language, which they maintain the rights to. And if you want to write your NOS that runs on a Broadcom, you have to then sign up to an agreement with Broadcom, which means they maintain control of certain aspects around how you use and so forth and so on. So you can't ever run true open source on top of a Broadcom ASIC. That doesn't seem to be a problem. The industry seems to have decided that that's acceptable on the whole. We haven't seen the competitive vendors do much in that space and just say, oh, here's our language, you can use that. Many more of them have headed towards the P4 so that they don't have to, you know, to make that onboarding, to make that resistance, you know, I don't have to go and get legal to check out an agreement sort of thing right. is exactly where yeah. you want to be. So if Sonic supports it, it's because they've given some sort of probably a D-rated license to Sonic or to open source. They've probably got some parts of the MPL which they've open sourced and made available for the people on the Sonic project to access, but it won't be the complete feature set if anything in the past is going by. They have a number of features which they won't allow to be released. You actually have to um, pay. So the OEMs who want to get the maximum amount of the assets will often pay to access them, and you might see if you're a cloud provider and you want to access that, then, you know, you get legal involved and purchasing involved and you start knocking out a price to get access to all the features if that's what you want. Well, the biggest user of Sonic at this point is probably still Microsoft uh, to run their Azure clouds. Uh, so I, I don't know if they've had to do any specific uh, deals with Broadcom on, on getting no. Sonic and Sci onto their ASICs. But <laughs> if anybody could, it would be Microsoft. Yeah, well, it is. It's a useful way to control the market, I think. Broadcom's done well to be able to convince people that you know, NPL is something that they feel is important and customers have sort of accepted it. And we did talk in the and P4 was an attempt to sort of get that, you know, the way that you talk to the, the, the ASIC to be standardized, like we do with the Intel CPUs. There's the x86 instruction set. So whether you use Intel or AMD, the x86 instruction set is universal. And that has advantages. It allows many flowers to bloom. Uh, but Broadcom doesn't want that at this point in time so far. So... The MPL language is continuing to advance and you can get access to bits of it on the uh, forums and so forth. So if you actually want to write code for it, but there are limitations, you just should check them if you're uh, going to have a look at them. Our links in the show notes if you're interested in that new ASIC. Uh, we'll move on. Uh, Talos is buying a security company Imperva for $3.6 billion US dollars from private equity firm Toma Bravo. Imperva makes web application firewalls and database security software. Uh, Talos is a French conglomerate there in defense, aerospace, and the cybersec sectors. Uh, the company says the acquisition is going to help drive growth for them in the security market and get uh, Talos into the application security sector. Yeah, Talos is, we talked about Talos a couple of times, a very mature French organization, 25% owned by the French government, 25 5% by Dassault Aviation, which is a long-time French manufacturing firm, 50% with public shareholders. Um, it's interesting in the sense that I think it highlights the gap between heritage security companies versus, you know, the more modern, you know, when we see companies just emerge out of nowhere offering threat detection and, you know, SASE mm -hmm. and, Z, you know, uh, companies like Zscaler and so forth, they will struggle to win government and defense-related contracts because, 
if you're going to sell com- those products to the to the you know the highly classified like the military stuff, they expect those products to be um, developed by people who have background checks, and that right. those products are audited and reviewed by people with a distinct process. And you are hunting for bugs, but you're also hunting to make sure that you know a foreign state actor isn't suddenly involved in putting a backdoor inside of this project. And if you're a company that's growing fast and ramping and desperately just hiring anybody who'll say yes to your your offers as quickly as possible, well, you can't do the background checks. You can't do those audits. The product's changing so fast, you can't know what's inside of that. So I think this is where why Imperva was attractive to Tullis. Uh, Imperva is very much a heritage company. It comes from a long way back. It started its first uh, firewall back in 2002, I believe, um, when it was basically building a WAF although they called it an application scanning firewall, you know, which is what we call them today. Um, they did a bunch of growing. They were around. They were very popular in that period before firewalls became application firewalls by default. Did a bunch of uh, acquisitions in 2019. If I remember rightly, they ran out of money and they were rescued by Toma Bravo, who've managed to spin it around uh, four years, bought it in 2019, turned around four years later, made $1.5 billion profit, which is probably all right, I think, do you think? I think pretty good. Yep, mm. yep. They bought them for two point one billion, sold them for three point six, mm. whatever it was. So yeah, one one and a half billion dollars profit. That's a nice, a nice payday for Toma Bravo. Yeah, yeah. I feel like uh, the web app firewall market never really took off, particularly compared to say traditional network firewalls or next gen firewalls. I think because of the complexities and interdependencies of web applications and trying to uh, sort out uh, legitimate traffic from attacks. But uh, I think you raise a good point that. Uh, a company like Talos is looking for mature com- mature uh, organ- companies that they can buy, uh, and I would assume that there are companies in their sector, defense and so mm-hmm. on, who maybe are using this kind of technology yeah. where this uh, allows them to say, yeah, we're selling you you know, missile parts and aircraft parts. We could also sell you a web app firewall if you're interested. But also, if you're trying to sell to you know, the Ukrainian military, they want to make sure there's no Russian or Chinese state actors in there. So mm-hmm. you actually then have to start doing background checks on all your employees who are writing the code and taking the support calls and right. so forth. And so that all yeah. you know that just instantly takes out seventy percent of the security market today because it's all, you know, <laughs> hard charging startups, but you know mostly ma- manned by cowboys and very little validation and attention to detail around process security, software security, and also checking that the you know that no backdoors are being put into human the, security. Yeah. So yeah. mm-hmm. this is really sort of, you know, the old world meets the new world sort of thing. Talos is an old world. It needs a modern security. So it's looking for a company that meets that modern requirements. And I think this is where it is. And Perva will probably have, you know, a whole bunch of DOD, you know, military approvals and standards that they've met and allowed to sell and they're on contracts and stuff. And that'd be right where Talos is. Yeah. Yeah. I would assume they would have that already in place, which is why they were attractive to Talos as opposed to having to build that from the ground up. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because uh, it did strike me as imperva. That's how you want to get into the cyberspace yeah. sector. But I guess if you're going after a specific market, you're going to have required. Hopefully, you know, you. I would assume then all of their defense requirements on the imperva side have been met, which allows Talos to move right into the space. That's right. I, that's what I would imagine. Yeah. All right, moving on, uh, Dell and NVIDIA are partnering on an initiative to develop generative AI on-premises via an effort called Project Helix. The goal is to build generative AI tools uh, out of all the data collected and stored within a corporation. So things like your proprietary data, emails, and so on. Use cases include enterprise search, customer service, and market intelligence. Yeah, you know, we talked a lot about AI recently, and this is in this thread. 
um, where we're seeing the the use of AI, generative AI. There's two types of generative AI. There's inference AI and model generation or generative AI. And what Dell's trying to get into here is saying you can actually do this on premises, as you might think, right? They don't want to see it all go off to the cloud, although they supply, you know, equipment to the public cloud providers, off-prem cloud providers. Dell wants to be able to say, oh, yes, we can sell that to you as well, Mr. Enterprise. So Project Helix was previously announced. I think we referred to it. I hope we did. And this is a collaboration between Dell and NVIDIA. They've now developed a whole bunch of validated designs so that resellers and customers can come buy a set of products from Dell that have a level of assurance or a level of reassurance that you're getting the right kit. Like very few people in AI know what they're doing. Very few corporations know what they're buying. And so you might be able to go to Dell and buy one of these validated designs and get a feeling of comfort. And it also makes it easy for Dell and resellers to support you. So that is Dell can put people in and say, you've just got to learn what's in this validated design. Resellers go out and say, you have to learn this and know how to sell this. And so this all becomes a virtuous loop. Now, there are people who would say that that's a negative because you're missing out on everything that's not in the validators and that's true, but maybe there's some middle ground here where people want it. So they're giving you a bunch of hardware in the first phase. It's only targeted at inference. So it's not in generating the models, it's targeting it, taking the model and then inferring results so you can run the models on-prem. The models would be generated externally. You download a model like, say, for example, Facebook's Llama 2, which is their latest LLM, you can take that model that's been gen- you know been generated and use it at the edge. And you've still got the GPUs and everything to accelerate the inference process to get the engine. Uh, Dell's also providing access to pre-trained models from NVIDIA. And uh, you can bring it all on-prem and run it in your own data center. So that's a, that's a whole new market that we haven't seen talked about much. And I think Dell might have beat that to the punch. I think HPE talked about it a couple of weeks ago as well. So we'll see. Yeah, I think one of the hooks here is besides having it on-prem, it's also building uh, models off of your own corporate data as opposed to public data sets yeah. from information scraped off the internet. So <laughs> all of those emails uh, inside your email servers, all of the, you know, your financial results, everything, all the uh, PowerPoints and so on that you inside your corporation generate, I think companies are always sitting you know, sitting on tons and tons and tons of data mm-hmm. thinking, how can we leverage this? Here's an opportunity to maybe hmm. get something out of all that data just sitting Yeah, there. that's right. You can go and get them. At this point, you would get a model generated from somebody, by somebody for you. And then you would add Mm -hmm. your data so that you can infer from, use the model to infer outcomes based on the data. And keep in mind that for many enterprises, that data is actually on-premise. It's not actually, you know, in the cloud. And if you've got to build an AI, you've got to spend three months sucking the data up to the cloud or whatever. Um, That's going to take some time. Uh, Also notable is that Dell is offering workstations as well. So instead, not just servers, but you can also uh, equip your developers with a bunch of workstations which have NVIDIA RTX GPUs optimized for AI. And they're saying they're going to optimize power consumption and things, lots of claims, um, as is usually the case when these sorts of workstations come up. Um, So, you know, servers, prepackaged solution with the software and everything for AI around the NVIDIA stack, which we talked about three or four weeks ago. Um, And now Dell's decided it's going to take these bits from NVIDIA, package them up, in both servers and workstations. So it'll be interesting to see how this takes off if you want to be able to run AI on-premise, says. Yep, yeah. Uh, And in a related story, uh, Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger says Intel will one day incorporate AI into every platform that Intel makes. And Greg, this got you thinking about uh, AI at the edge. Yeah, well, it was Intel's financial results. We had a lot of financial results this week. So let's just quickly cover off the fact that they all did well. 
Well done, everybody. You've been spending lots of money with all of the technology vendors. Profits are up, sales are up, and everybody is ballistically happy as the share prices rise. If you haven't got shares, then it's not very good for you. It means you're poorer. But anyway, um, the point, I think the interesting part here is that Intel is saying he's betting on the fact that AI will be in everything. So instead of saying AI is just in the cloud. Now, the, the trick here is to realize that up until now, the only time we've ever talked about AI is everybody says, oh, it's got to be done in the cloud. You can only do it in the cloud. You can only, you've got to get all your data off-prem and, you know, all of the AI will be on AWS or GCP or, or, or Azure or whatever. But that is probably not true. Most of the AI will happen at the edge. And, you know, as we just saw from Dell, they're building hardware and I'm sure HPE will do the same and, and that you can actually start to do more AI type work at the edge where your data security and, you know, data sovereignty issues can be solved. Um, but the why I think the flip here is that you're going to end up with uh, Apple smartphones, for example, where you have an AI chip in there. They didn't call it AI; they call it augmented reality or neural processing chip or whatever. But it is a functionally a GPU that's able to do some AI, and you will be able to do most of that work at the edge. So the consumption of AI will certainly be doing the inferencing at the edge of the network in your smartphone, in your desktop, in your smart door lock that has a picture of your face. Perhaps I don't know. And in the future, I think we're going to see much more of this done at the edge. So we'll see more of it done on premises. And to support that, Intel and AMD will both want to be selling you CPUs that do that. They don't want to see uh, NVIDIA controlling the GPUs. We, I mean, do we want to see NVIDIA as the only company that's making AI uh, hardware in the future? I don't think so. I mean, I certainly don't. I'm sure NVIDIA does. Uh, I know Intel doesn't. So Yeah. yeah. And I'm pretty sure that NVIDIA doesn't want to build a monopsony either. A monopsony is where there's only a, a couple of customers for your product. So they don't want to see their margins go under threat because only the big cloud providers, AWS, Oracle, you know, and so forth, are the only people who buy their AI GPUs. Uh, they want to have as many customers as possible so that that gives them control of the market. And so what they've done is, you know, attack the largest market first, that generates volume for silicon manufacture. And my belief is that you would then see a second wave of AI as those uh, GPUs then beget repurposed for the mass market. So they'll come out to the enterprise, come out to the desktop so that you can do AI at the edge. And so volume, and then you start to see it in a fractured market so that NVIDIA, we're seeing it already with games. I think eventually games will, your GPU will transform into some sort of AI <laughs> chip so that your game can AI, if that's what you want, and NVIDIA is well positioned for that. And don't forget that uh, NVIDIA's main competitor is no longer Intel, it's really AMD. And for them, AMD has the GPU, they also have a CPU, and they also have a DPU, uh, and they can potentially attack that market much more dramatically than Intel, now that Intel's uh, facing up to its financial uh, situation. So I think it'll be very interesting to watch NVIDIA and AMD you know, compete with each other going forward. I'm curious to get your sense of what you mean by the edge, because uh, my understanding is that there are lots of organizations who are building AI uh, clusters on their in their own data centers as opposed to doing in a cloud. Are yeah. you, is that how you're defining the edge as yeah. opposed to well, if you're not what I think of as the edge is a very small, uh, you know, yeah. a small uh, location with not a lot of compute power where you couldn't do AI processing? Well, you can also do it in a laptop or in a smartphone or, you know, in some sort of house processor. So, you know, your mm -hmm. smart home has a usually have a has a box which is the central i think we'll start to see some sort of ai chipslets you know some sort of cut down version of that low powered but you know cut having our silicon specifically to run ai processing particularly to 
conduct inference tasks from existing models. So you, you know, you download your Apple TV, latest operating system comes down in, there's a little AI chip and they're looking to infer various things about the movies that you watch or the game you play or the text mm. that you create and that will be done locally. Like it, it's probably not viable to go sending all of that AI processing off-prem somewhere, backhauling it to a cloud in Germany or the US or you know wherever, getting the processing and then for it to come back. It's going to be done locally. It doesn't make sense. And with the cost of power and the way power networks are going, I was talking to a nuclear scientist recently and he was saying that the people who are most interested in micro reactors is the data center companies because they can no longer <laughs> buy power in the main market. There's no capacity left right. in the in the grid, you know, barring bits and pieces, there's, you know, that's not, but as a general rule, that's not a bad starting point. And when they build a data center, they don't need, you know, 30,000 megawatts. So if you build a coal-fired power station, they're subscale it until you reach about 20, 30 mega, megawatts. But a data center sort of needs like 100 megawatts, 200 megawatts, 500 megawatts. We can put in a micro reactor, micro nuclear reactor of some sort and put it there and that will give you the power. But that's a different situation. It's power that's the problem. And we're, I think we're starting to realize that off-prem clouds have a power weakness. That is, there's no power around. And that may be where the choke point is for off-prem clouds in the future. It's just an evolving situation, though. Every time you say yeah. that, something comes along to use less power or they make something more efficient or whatever. So we'll see. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. We'll take a quick break for a message from Palo Alto Networks. Your branches changed, your SD-WAN should too. You can join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. As businesses focus on driving the next growth phase, branch transformation has become a key priority for IT leaders. Critical industries such as finance, retail, healthcare, and manufacturing rely on a network of branch offices to serve their customers well. The newly established trends of hybrid work, digital-first customers, and accelerated cloud adoption are forcing organizations to rethink their branch IT strategy. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks hosted an exclusive online event, and you can get the full replay of the event to see how NextGen, SD-WAN, and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to sdxcentral.com to get the link to sign up for the replay or get the link in the show notes for this Network Break episode, which is 440. Uh, we thank Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. Uh, back to the news, U.S. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon has asked three U.S. government agencies to investigate Microsoft for sloppy security practices that have led to the theft of emails and data from government agencies and private sector organizations. I'll, I'll break it down real quickly. Wyden has asked the U.S. Justice Department to investigate whether Microsoft has failed to follow cybersecurity standards required of government contracts. He's asked the Federal Trade Commission to investigate whether Microsoft violated federal laws around unfair and deceptive trade practices. And he's asked the Cyber Safety Review Board to look into Microsoft failures around protecting customer encryption keys. Can I just yell out, I told you so? Like, <laughs> this is something, because, you know, we often talk about here about Microsoft being having, having a particularly poor record of securing their products and preventing bugs from coming into their products or making choices of profit over integrity where they could look after customers if they, you know, simple things like disabling macros in Word and Excel. Yes, that would be painful for some people, but it's necessary to save, you know, there there is another issue here. Uh, and in this case, uh, there was a theft of a signing key and that key, which was taken from inside Microsoft, probably by an insider threat, um, was then used to compromise large numbers of customers hosted on Azure and in particular, a large number of US government. So it's suspected to be a state level attack and mm -hmm. they went in and ransacked a whole bunch of data from various government departments. Uh, the the actual document from uh, Ron Wyden, Ron Wyden, of course, is not has been a long time campaigner 
uh, around tech, very smart, very savvy, but more particularly, he's got uh, people on staff who really, really know this stuff. And so the document is quite readable. Did you read through it at all? I read the document and I was pleasantly surprised about how very clearly and directly and succinctly he described the security issues mm. and to my mind also correctly. So, yeah, I think he does have good staff to, to be able to, to craft a letter so so clear and plain. That's right. And so what he's saying here is, you know, since the hackers stole an MSA encryption key, the hackers could create fake authentication tokens to impersonate users and gain access to Microsoft hosted consumer accounts. Now, even if a user's account was protected with multi-factor authentication and a strong password, government emails were stolen because Microsoft committed another error. Although the stolen encryption key was for a consumer account, a validation error in Microsoft code allowed the hackers to also create fake tokens for Microsoft hosted accounts for government agencies and other organizations. So, you know, this doesn't have any impact on its own. A U.S. senator basically knocking on the door saying this is something that needs to be addressed. And generally what happens is government departments listen to this and sort of take it as a hint that the, that the politicians are interested in this and they should be doing more. Um, however... The FTC, the Department of Justice, and the CISA, CISA, uh, don't are not obligated to respond to a senator suddenly do something. Am I right? You're the U.S. political expert on this show. Yes, I believe they are not obligated to, but certainly this does get their attention. And I think the other target of this clearly is Microsoft, because uh, Senator Wyden calls out Microsoft directly. And I think to me the subtext here is. You know, hey, Microsoft, if you don't start taking security seriously, maybe we're going to think about whether you should be a government contractor. Yeah. And in a quote here, I write to request that your agencies take action to hold Microsoft responsible for its negligence of cybersecurity practices, which enabled a successful Chinese espionage campaign against the United States government. Okay. <laughs> that is absolutely <laughs> getting right to the heart of the issue, right? There's no mucking around. <laughs> There's not much going on here. Um, yes. So the. And, the, and of course, the whole China versus the West issue is going, you know, the geopolitics, um, and and there's a whole issue going on, a much larger issue going on, because the U.S. government is starting to realize that all of the surveillance that corporations are doing on people is actually being bought by other state, by other governments. So you can actually buy information on the entire corpus of the U.S. or the of Europe, and the you know governments can get that information and start knowing who's doing what and where you live and all that sort of stuff um and there's a sort of a severe a, a slow awakening to the just how much information um is being stolen about the population and it's being used by geopolitical actors for various reasons but i think the main thing here is that this is a direct call out on microsoft microsoft has every incentive to implement poor security because they sell products to prevent poor security instead and they actually get to make more money by selling you the fix for the problems that they created. Um, doesn't actually make that accusation, but it's right there in between the lines um, sure. that you know Microsoft needs to do better because if it's going to charge to fix those problems, maybe it shouldn't have done them in the first place. There are obligations under the law to provide a product that actually works, and I do think we're starting to see a sort of a reaction. You know, we talk about this a lot. You know, companies are getting very lax around security, and it's not their problem; it's the customer's problem, and who cares about them anyway, sort right. of thing. So, it'd be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad Senator Wyden did this. I think he is an advocate for uh, 
reasonable cybersecurity protections and also internet privacy. So both good things from my perspective. And again, the fact that he's uh, directly called out Microsoft here, whether or not any investigations get launched is a signal to Microsoft that someone is paying attention and they are potentially under threat for, you know, their government contract positions. And maybe down the line, software companies uh, having their indemnity revoked for their <laughs> shoddy products. You might want to send this to your Azure nice. sales rep and see if you can get some discount. <laughs> that will probably be more likely to make a difference, to be fair. Just, just include it yeah. in your next uh, contract. No, just meeting, just yes. take this just... and send it off to your sales rep and say, we'd like to get an official response to the accusations here. What do you think? And uh, Just casually slide it across the table when they, when they hand you the bill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up again. Uh, yeah, it's, it's worth reading. Check it yeah. out. Uh, we'll move on. The IEEE has approved the 802.11BB standard for Li-Fi that is using light waves instead of radio for wireless communication. Uh, this standard is focusing on the physical layer specifications and system architectures for Li-Fi. Yeah, this is one that's been bouncing around for a while. See what I did there? See what I did there? <laughs> uh, the, oh I, was it 15 years ago they talked about doing light networking in the data center? I, I want to say it was HP when it was going through its uh, phase of optical networking and it was going to use oh. optics and they were going to put light bulbs up as switches and all this sort of stuff. I vaguely remember something like yeah. that, yeah. Anyway, this is a line of sight based wireless networking standard, except instead of using radio waves, it's using light waves. Um, and it defines an interoperable communication protocol for Li-Fi devices. Um, they claim that it'll be very high speed. Uh, we're not 100% sure, but it currently suggestion is it's somewhere between 10 megabits and 10 gigabits per second. It's a pretty broad spectrum, Drew, to be honest with you. Um, that is a big range, yeah, yes. Yeah, the standard describes the use of light in the near-infrared, 800 to 1,000 nanometer. And uh, I think this will be interesting in the sense that this is, feels much more like a home thing or a casual sort of set up a, a new where Wi-Fi doesn't work or where you don't want right. to put wire, you know, or Bluetooth isn't quite the right thing. The question right. in my mind is how does Li-Fi better than Bluetooth and why would I switch to adding a laser to something instead of just implementing a Bluetooth? Because I can get Bluetooth chips cheaply and easily and everybody knows how to design them. I'm not, I'm not immediately sure that there's a market for this. Yeah, I'm curious about the use cases because obviously radio waves can go through physical objects, whereas light can't. Uh, at least you're not going to shoot a laser that can yeah. because that would be problematic. Uh, so yeah, I it seems like this has really been pushed by a, a private company called Fraunhofer. Yeah. Uh, so maybe they have technology they think they could leverage for this. So I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I really don't see how this is going yeah. to be better than radio waves unless there are very specific, very niche use cases that, that could profit oh. from Fraunhofer is a, a company that specializes in intellectual property. They create it, but then their uh, specialization is making it okay. included in a standard. So Fraunhofer was the original organization <laughs> behind the MP3 encoding algorithm, if you remember oh, I back. I see. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. they are one of these organizations that takes certain types of science and then tries to get them into standards so that they can make money out of FRAN, fair and reasonable and non-discriminatory licensing. Uh, it's a pretty pretty lucrative business if you can get, you know, like a Wi-Fi. There's a couple of people with uh, patents around the Wi-Fi, and they do very nice business, a lot of money out of that. I'm sure whoever got those MP3 patents must be yeah. living it up. Well, the Fraunhofer was the original. They sold it off to someone else who litigated it, who eventually made money out of it. So in that sense, they are a research organization, but... It's a bit like Dolby and the audio standards, you know. They go around developing these standards that nobody wants and then they try and drum up business around them so that they can get licensing fees out of them. I, I'm just not convinced that this has instantly got a visible market. 
Bluetooth is well established. Software's available. Did you say visible market on purpose? <laughs> was that? I did. A... I did. You could. You picked it up. <laughs> you played about that. <laughs> so good. So good. <laughs> but you get the idea. I mean, uh, where is it? You know, what, what do you, What's better with with a with a light network instead of a Wi-Fi or a Bluetooth? You know. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll have the we have the link to the IEEE uh, notification if you want to go check it out. Uh, we'll wrap up with uh, financial results from Juniper Networks. The Juniper Networks reported their uh, second quarter 2023 net revenue was 1.4 billion, up 13% year over year. Net income was 24.4 million, down 78% compared to this time last year, but uh, CEO Rami Rahim is still upbeat. So the enterprise business unit had a record quarter. Uh, Mist AI is driving record revenues in wireless, wired, and SD-WAN offerings, although he did cite weakness in cloud and service provider orders in the near term. Yeah, I uh, checked up with some research uh, with Jefferies, and they said the belief uh, that the cloud providers are actually slowing down their purchases because they have excess inventory. And so they're not buying as much in this quarter because they bought it all before and they still haven't absorbed it all. I think that much more likely is that cloud providers are actually slowing down. There's a lot of evidence. And if you put to read like 100 and 200 articles every week about cloud provider financials, you'll sort of start to read between the lines that the growth in those companies is slowing. That is, there's less and less people moving to the cloud and less and less money being spent on off-premises cloud. Um, they're still growing so it's, and they're still very impressive businesses. Don't get me wrong. But Mm -hmm. the the next phase of growth they've reached about 10% of the market seems to be the rough number that we're talking about off premise clouds are about 10% of the IT market um but there's no signs of where the rest of it's going to come from you know they're not going to doesn't appear that they're going to dominate the IT market now they get into the hard slog of you know 1% here 1% there and so mm -hmm. i suspect that you're actually they're just saying it's excess inventory i think it's because the cloud providers are slowing down and they can't say so but one of the things that I particularly liked was that uh, Jeffrey's noticed that the enterprise business absolutely took off. So 100% year over year in sales and with orders up 40% year over year. So sales are up, order forward orders are up 40%. So the challenge with that Juniper's got for shareholders is that it can't accurately predict the future because part of it's to do with inventory problems. There's still some inventory issues. And it, with the financial turmoil is the market our enterprise is going to turn up and keep ordering in bulk. But I just want to remind you that we predicted that Juniper's return to the enterprise. And here is the evidence that we were right. And I'm just going to sit here and be smug, very quietly, smug. Okay, good. Can, we sit there quietly and smugness. Yeah, can you hear my smugness? Just how smug I am. I can, I can feel it coming over the, the, yes, the, the podcast recording. Yeah, I think, I think all of the, the, you know, the heritage providers have attacked the enterprise market with the realisation that that's where the future is. Instead of trying to go and get on board with the cloud providers, I think they finally realize that the cloud providers are going to do what they're going to do, but that's not by and large where their future is. And so they're returning to the enterprise. Yep. It's also very clear in Juniper's case that MIST, uh, the MIST AI and the mystification of Juniper's uh, enterprise portfolio from wireless to wired, uh, now moving into SD-WAN and other aspects of their enterprise portfolio, has been the driver of their growth. Mm. Uh, MIST was a great acquisition for them. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they picked AI early, way before everybody got on the train, and they had, and then they, they did. you know, and they did they executed on it. They did a good job. Yeah, they worked it out and brought it to the walked brought it out of wireless into wired. Um, still hasn't arrived in the data center yet, but I'm hopeful that it'll come very soon. So we'll see what happens going forward. But what about Abstra? Yeah, well, you know, it seems to me that you could strap a missed AI on top of Abstra fairly <laughs> readily, but we'll see. Maybe they just want to focus on what they're doing before they get. 
take that take on that challenge. Yes, I think so. Or equally, maybe the data center doesn't change that much. <laughs> right, could be. Yeah, maybe could it's be. just not necessary. Yeah. yeah. All right, as always, links in the show notes. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of Network Break. That's the end of the news portion. We do have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto Networks coming up. Uh, we're talking about secure web gateways. So check it out. That's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we explore secure web gateways with sponsor Palo Alto Networks. Secure web gateways sit between users and web traffic to enforce policies around web and application access, and they inspect traffic for malware. And we're going to talk with Palo Alto Networks about some customer challenges with secure web gateways and also innovations in their Prisma Access Cloud Secure Web Gateways and more. Our guest from Palo Alto Networks is Nithin Varam. He is product line manager uh, for Palo Alto Networks at Prisma Access. Uh, Nithin, welcome to the podcast. And so I gave a very brief description in the intro of secure web gateways. Is there anything I left out or anything else? you want to say about uh, SWGs before we dive in? Yeah, no, you were spot on and uh, that's correct. So the secure gateway purpose is to secure access to internet from uh, users or servers to protect organizations from um, you know getting infected from uh, bad things out on the internet. So this is desktops, phones, tablets getting surfing out to the internet from a corporate office and you want to be able to say, what are they seeing and keeping them safe from the, you know, whatever it is, with phishing or watering hole attacks and so forth. Correct. Yes. And and sometimes right. the organizations also have policies like, you know, uh, they only allow certain sites to be visited, like maybe yep. they didn't want users to go to the All right. So it's like, not just the malware, it's also the uh, productivity, we'll say. Product, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's one way of doing it. Now, the key thing about this is that to do that, you have to be able to inspect the traffic, right? You have to be yeah. able to uh, see, you have to get inside and a lot of the traffic these days is encrypted. So secure web gateways are really about inspection. So what are some of the more common problems that we see? So when it comes to implementing these, because they're complex and they're hard, what are some of the common problems or challenges that customers are seeing when they're using these? Some of the things that customers told us are, for example, if they're using an on-prem stack, like an on-prem um, proxies mm-hmm. to secure web traffic, yep. then when users turn off their uh, VPN, then they're also losing secure uh, web gateway security, right? Because this thing is on-prem. Right. So um, you have a client out there, there's a VPN, they go, I want to do something, I turn the VPN off, and then all of a sudden they're open to the internet to be, well, you know, malware and whatever can get in on the edge. You, so secure web gateway is only one part of a secure stack, is right? Right. So that, that's one part. The second part uh, could be, you know, the mod, like they're not able to secure like modern attacks. For example, if you take phishing, the reports that, you know, more than like 84% of organizations have successfully got phished and there are more advanced, like sophisticated forms of phishing, like uh, the ones that Microsoft spoke about last year, like a meddler in the middle mm. uh, attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. So they're looking for a better security solutions. Right. What about one of the things that I have, I did many years of working on managed web gateways and proxies and they're administratively, they're quite complex. Like when people change personal devices and managed devices, as we have with remote access, that must be very difficult to manage. Yeah. So that comes in mainly because, you know, when you look at like a traditional on-prem stack, um, you have a on-prem proxy, but along with the proxy, you have uh, multiple of other solutions, right? You have one mm-hmm. a solution that does your sandboxing. You have another solution that does your CASB. There's a one solution that does your DLP. So when you have so many disparate solutions, it's very hard mm-hmm. to get a consistent security outcome. Yeah. Because, it's, you know, we used to have to build a proxy and then we have to put a DLP engine on the side. Then we'd have to put a threat detection engine and there'd be, you know, the proxy would talk left and right to all of these appliances. It would get very latent and users would want to disable this. And all operationally, it was very difficult. And also scaling would be quite difficult. So how is Palo Alto Networks then dealing with those challenges? What are we doing to be able to make it more realistic, to be able to consume the secure web gateway in a consistent, always on way? 
Good question. So from Prismax's perspective, we have internet security, basic URL filtering, or you're looking for like a DNS security, you want threat prevention, you want um, you know, sandboxing, mm. all of that is provided like in a one product with one mm. single UI to manage everything, right? So from admins, it becomes very easy for them to like write policies, look at logs uh, and everything in one place, right? Now, when the, like, like you spoke about the scaling and the availability, so we have... Yeah. So we are completely cloud delivered and we run on uh, top of our hyperscalers like on AWS and GCP. So that's mm -hmm. why we all, we can give you like a very high SLA compared to like even an on-prem proxy vendor or or someone running in the cloud. You know, for example. So, so what you're saying there is you're now that where the edge client was not present in a, in a in a normal corporate in the old corporate network you just configure the proxy in the web browser and then all the and the routing so all the traffic would go through the secure web gateway that was the old way what we're saying now is we're actually installing a proxy agent or an agent based on every edge point and it then proxies at the edge and then it would then decide whether to send the traffic steer the traffic to the cloud or to steer the traffic to the appliance or would it or is it all moving to the cloud yeah, so so our GP agent, you can um, use an agent to secure web traffic and even your private apps. Everything can mm -hmm. secure all ports and protocols. Like if a customer specifically is looking for, hey, I need a proxy-based solution because I have a compliance or I have a network need that they need a proxy, then mm -hmm. what you can do is you can uh, turn on a proxy mode on the agent and then agent would connect to a, a proxy in the cloud and whether user is remote or user is on uh, I see what you're saying. So the agent then gets in the... It proxies the connections for what the user's doing. And then instead of sending it to the secure web gateway, it sends it to the secure web gateway that's cloud hosted. Yeah, that's, that's cloud hosted, right. correct. Okay, so effectively there's always a secure web gateway, whether they're at home, in a coffee shop, or whether in head office. So this is a way to bridge all the working environments that a customer might be in, office, home, out, you know, mobile workforce. Yes, that's correct. And then for the and for the servers where let's say you have systems where you cannot install an agent uh, or you cannot roll out an agent, we do also support a traditional space where you can either connect your site or a branch to Prism Access via like a site-to-site -site IPsec tunnel and turn on a proxy mode on it to secure the traffic, or you can just install a pack file and then send the traffic to Prism Access to secure it. Yeah, yeah. Tunnel mode is becoming more popular, although using a pack file to just redirect your web traffic is kind of Sometimes it just doesn't feel like it works because a lot of people use apps that are not web-based these days. They're still Electron apps and so forth. What about compatibility with third-party VPNs? Yeah, so uh, so that's the advantage we have with the proxy mode on a GP uh, on our mm. Blue Protect agent, where it can coexist seamlessly with your third-party VPNs, and we can take care of internet security, and then uh, the third-party VPN can provide you a private app access. Uh, while while GP agent can do both, you know, when customer trying to replace their traditional solutions with a Prisma access, they mm. might choose to do one thing at a time. Like maybe they they choose to do so replace. Swig first and then replace private access. So this could mm -hmm. give you a way for you to like, okay, first take out Swig with a proxy agent and then when you're ready, replace your third-party VPN and and make Prisma. All right, so this is a coexistence. This means I can use Global Protect, which is the VPN, you know, the agent thing, and then start steering to traffic in, but I can it coexists with the third-party VPN if yes. you're using one today. Yes. So if you've got an existing yes. IPsec and you want to run both, it still allows you to, Yes. Yeah. So if you've got a secure web gateway and head office and some VPN solution, you can work out a way to migrate off gradually rather than a big yeah. bang sort of an approach. Big bang. Yes. I, I think that's important too, because I know, you know, when the pandemic first rolled out and everybody went home, sort of the instant solution was everybody gets a VPN client. Uh, and so you've made that investment, you've rolled them out, you've got them working. 
to then come along to a customer and say, you kind of want to pull that VPN client is, is a hard ask. So this compatibility idea, I think, makes sense. Is that what you're seeing from customers who have VPNs in place, but also are thinking we need, you know, something else besides the traditional IPsec VPN? No, yeah, I think people who today, especially who are using non-print proxies today, they use VPNs to, you know, uh, back all the traffic back and they're running into all these productivity issues and the right. user application uh, issues, right? So uh, so they, when they want to migrate away, they uh, some of the customers are looking for a phased migration. So that's where they want to ke- still keep their third-party VPN, but use only like a private apps on that and send the majority of like internet traffic all directly to the cloud and get inspected there. And that's where the coexistence really helps. Okay, so I might be using the VPN, my traditional VPN for private applications, but uh, my web traffic I'm going to send out via Global Protect. Yes, correct. So the challenge here is how do you secure access to servers when you can't install an agent? Is this the, like when they're on private IPs, for example, inside an existing network? We do run into cases where customers have servers that need to talk to internet, maybe to download some updates or, and things like that. Uh, so, so if you cannot install agent on them, what you can do is you can connect the uh, servers or, or the sites where the servers are to Prisma Access via an IPsec mm-hmm. tunnel. And then if you, if you want to authenticate, we, we support authentication options like Kerberos where you can authenticate them. Or if they cannot participate in such things, then since you have an IPsec tunnel from the sites, we do see a private IPs and you can write policies based on those private IPs, using the private IPs right. for the servers. So yeah. this means when, you, when we say writing policies, you're actually in Prisma Access, which is your application for managing huge scale of deployments. You create the policy and it then pushes it down to the agents and then down to the secure web gateways, wherever they may be, so that you have one consistent policy regardless of where you are. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, with our cloud management uh, solution, you can write policies. Everything is in one UI, like the logs, the policies, everything is one place. And then mm-hmm. they'll be pushed to like uh, Swig notes where whether you're connecting to them via agent or you connect to them directly via pack file or, or other ways, we can still give you a consistent security. And, and that pack file, is that for cases where for some reason I don't have an agent on a client device, but if they're using the web browser, the web browser will essentially direct them to, you know, whatever IP address or DNS is in the pack file? Yeah, so, so, so we, we support, we support like as we support multiple options, the reason we, we support pack file also is from the ease of migration. So customers today, they, they might be using a pack file today that, talks to an on-prem proxy, all they have to do is mm. change that and point to our proxy. So that way your migration becomes very seamless. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You forget how powerful pack files are until you really start digging into them, really. <laughs> I mean, we, we, are, we are hearing both sides too. Like like some people hate managing a pack files. So for them, yeah. we also have, we, we, we also support <laughs> like a forwarding rules on our side where, yeah. where they, they can just write those logic without having to actually author a pack file. Yeah. Um, and for someone who wants to completely get away from the whole pack file, our agent can work where mm. you don't even have to write pack files, any of this, and they can take all ports and protocols. Yeah. yeah. Pack files are great. They're incredibly powerful, but they're so error prone. They're very fragile. Any change you make to them might have creative consequences. And so moving away from that, I think, is where most people want to be. Of course, people have been doing them for 10 years. They're all very comfortable and happy. So yeah, yeah. having both gives people to, you know, whatever tool they're comfortable with, they can go that way. Do you get customers who are maybe reluctant to get rid of that that hardware appliance because there's something comforting about having a machine you can touch and knowing sort of how it's spec'd out to handle all your traffic performance? Yeah, we do. We do see. I mean, um uh, we, we we do hear cases where uh, there's a comfortableness of hey we, we we want on something on prem because either because they have the you know complaints needed things have to be on prem in which case we do support a, a, our NGFW firewall scan 
do have a proxy option if they want a proxy there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the but the other reasons where they want maybe something on prem is to kind of you know see like if things are on prem then they can get the network packets and and all of that. And sometimes they feel if you go to a cloud solution they lose that part. But we do offer mm-hmm. traffic replication now, right? Yeah, traffic replication now. Correct. We do have a traffic replication now mm-hmm. where you can actually capture the raw packets and then uh, and then use it for your forensic analysis or anything that you need. Yeah, that's the forensic grade capture there, which is done by a third party, not you, means that I can get everything before you scan it. So if I have to do that audit function, it's there to audit that you're not, you know, that something's not going on. Are there other uh, security capabilities that you're building into your cloud-delivered secure gateways? One uh, good thing about the solution is, right, no matter how you choose to connect to us, agent, pack file, doing an IPsec tunnel to us, you get the same security. So whether it's a DNS security, uh, advanced shell filtering security, uh, CASB, DLP, like all of that is same. Um, now, some of the, just to touch upon some of the innovations that we did in the, on the on the URL filtering side, so you, we all are aware of phishing, right? And how rampant phishing is these days. Uh-huh. So back in July, Microsoft also blogged about this uh, new phishing technique called meddler in the middle uh, or adversarial in the middle attacks, where so traditionally what attackers have done is they mimic a login page, right? But when they mimic a login page, sometimes they're not very careful when they mimic it. So mm. for example, they have broken links or they have like, you know, typos in the login page and stuff. Uh-huh. So it's easy for, like an uh, like a solutions to capture the haters of the fake page, right? Mm. But now what attackers are doing is, or, or sorry, the other way to people do it is they do uh, like customers use two FA as a way to mitigate phishing. Right? Mm-hmm. Now what attackers come up with the technique uh, with this technique is that they relay the page by using reverse proxy, so they're actually relaying you actual like a let's say Microsoft login or GitHub login pages. Mm-hmm. So when you go, when the user sees it, he'll not see any error, right? And and like the page is exactly the same page, or, or like the uh, browser also will not complain. And then you enter, let's say you enter your credentials, you might enter your two-factor token and all of that. And then attacker is in the middle, so he's able to capture all that information. He's able to uh-huh. capture your cookie states and all of that, and he can re- relay it behind scenes. So now he has. So even if you have two FA, you won't be able to secure with this kind of attack. Right, and this is something that uh, advanced filtering, advanced URL filtering, this is available to all of us Maxis customers. They just need to turn on the feature to do a cloud analysis. When they do that, then we can stop such attacks. We can stop users from going to the sites and getting fished. Okay, that's great. Yeah, and phishing, I think, has become sort of one of the primary problems that organizations are dealing with. And I think the other thing to note about cloud-delivered solutions is that this is not a software update that I have to download and roll out across all of my gateways and so on. Because it's cloud-delivered, it just happens, right? Yeah, operations-wise, I think there are like a lot of uh, things that you benefits you get. That's the one thing that you mentioned. The the other thing also, we were actually investing in like you know as we use AI to not only like uh, to improve our security, like for example, preventing the phishing attack I spoke about earlier. We're also using AI to help the tools on the operations side as well. So so that you get like proactive alerts, or, or for example, if a user complains that hey, I'm not able to access the application properly, or I'm having a, a bad experience, we can tell you exactly in the where in the service path you're having a problem. Is it your Wi-Fi? Is it your uh, ISP? Is it the cloud application? Where do you see it's a problem? It's DNS. It'll be DNS. <laughs> It's always DNS. <laughs> yeah. Or Wi-Fi. If it's a home user, it's Wi-Fi first, but then maybe DNS. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, so we give you that visibility, and now we have added some more additional things on top to give you that, like even before user complain, we can proactively give you alerts when, when things are not going right. And you're getting that visibility via the Global Protect Agent? We have something called as ADEM um, on, mm-hmm. on Global Protect Agent that, that helps you with that. And now we have a, a feature called AI Ops, so that gives you with the proactive alerts. 
All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation. Thank you, Nathan, for joining us. And, and thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. Uh, if you're interested in finding out more about what Palo Alto Networks is doing with Secure Web Gateways in the cloud, go to paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy slash secure dash web dash gateway. That's paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy slash secure dash web dash gateway. We'll also have that URL in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, thank you for listening. You can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and if you would, rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.